Hey, everybody. Welcome to this next episode of the Cisco Tax Security Podcast, where we talk about all things Cisco security, including configuration, troubleshooting, uh, hot issues being seen by the TAC, and uh, just generally interesting security topics. With me today, we have Mr. Magnus Mortensen. How's it going, Magnus? It's going pretty good. Pretty good today. Okay, we got a, two special guests. We've got Kevin Klaus from the Cisco TAC. How's it going, Kevin? It's going well. Good morning, Jay. Excellent. And Michael Robertson. Hey, Jay. Um, who we've had on the show several times to talk about virtualization topics. Um, so what we're going to do with this episode, well, first of all, <laughs> so we've been getting some tweets. Um, Evan Wathington said, what happened to the Cisco Tax Security Podcast? One of the rare purely technical shows. No new episodes since May. Um, that's very true. So why haven't we posted a new episode since May, Magnus? I'd say it's a, a lot of different things. Um, combination of, well, Cisco Live definitely took some time, but that's in the past. And now it's just work on some new projects and new products that are coming out. Yeah, we've been very, very busy in the tech. But um, what we want to do is uh, tell you about some of the stuff we've been doing and also talk about um, some new technologies that are coming out that could be very helpful. So we're also working on some super cool secret projects in the TAC that hopefully uh, we'll be able to expose that could benefit you. Uh, we can't talk about that yet, though. Hopefully we will be able to in the future. Um, anyway, so for this show, uh, we'd like to get into the, the technical stuff um, right away. We're going to first be talking about some select new features in ASA version 9.2 and what they mean to you and uh, how you could take advantage of those. And then we'll talk about some interesting TAC cases we saw this week. Um, so ASA version 9.2 is not the most recent major train of ASA. So there's version, uh, a major train we would say um, is like 9.1 or 9.2. The major number is 9. The minor number is t 1 or 2. So this is version 9.2. We've also had version 9.3 released, but we'll save that for another show. Let's talk about some particular um, features in 9.2 you could take advantage of. So let's start with one that's on the top of a lot of people's minds, and that is the ASAV. So, uh, Mike, talk about, uh, you, we've had you on the show before, you've talked about the ASA1000V and VSG. Right. Wh why ASAV? How is that different from what we've released uh, previously? Well, the biggest difference is ASAV is actually just a, a virtualized ASA in the traditional sense. Um, ASA 1000V was more of a, a niche product. It was it was directed towards a very particular use case, and it was sort of a subset of the features of ASA, um, the traditional ASA code. So ASAV is more of the what you're used to when you get an ASA. It's basically has feature parity, with the exception of um, you know like clustering and multi-context mode, some of the architectural differences. But um, from a feature standpoint, you basically get everything that you would want from an ASA but in a virtualized package that's and easy to I, and deploy. And I think that this is probably what some customers thought we were releasing with yes. the ASA1000V. Yeah. So to clear up the confusion, this is uh, probably what you thought <laughs> thought you might have been able to get with version 8.7. But um, So we, we're just basically talking about a virtual ASA um, like you know, you'd run any other VM. Um, so with ASAV, you can have multiple interfaces. You can do sub-interfaces, um, full routing support, um, all that kind of good stuff. So, yeah. Okay, and instead of those... Uh, tagged um, ASA1000V interfaces. These are just normal interfaces exposed to ESXi or you know the underlying hypervisor, right? Yes, you get uh, when you deploy it, you get 10 interfaces, 10 virtual NICs that are assigned to it, and uh, you can sub-interface that out to up to 200 different VLANs. Okay, and what about um, multi-context mode? Because that was one thing that 
some people were surprised by that we didn't support multi-context mode in the ASC 1000B. Right. Um, yeah, we still don't support multi-context mode here, but if you think about the use case, it's it's not really a requirement. The whole, I mean, multi-context mode in and of itself is virtualizing a single physical box into sort of mul multiple virtual firewalls. And since this is a virtual firewall, there's really no need for multi-context mode here. If you, if you need another, what you would have done as a context previously, you just deploy another ASAV. And uh, about the resources that you assign to this, um, VM. So, uh, you you those are all specified in the OVA file. Yes. Right. Okay. And if and if you were to go and like mess with those or tweak them, I mean, those are there for a specific reason. You're going to get the performance you should get based on those numbers. So if you go in and tweak it and give it more or less resources, um, it's going to bark at you. I think it uh, automatically reboots itself. Yep. I think there's a little bit of a grace period there. It doesn't reboot right away, but it, it'll yeah, it'll log the message and yell at you if you try to do that. Um, just because we we try to limit the um, resources that it has for purposes of scalability and predictability, right? So you don't go in there and add, you know, 20 CPUs. We, we don't know what's going to happen in that, in that case. So, yep. And I think one really nice feature about this is um, the lab feature. So Magnus, talk about what that is. So from the perspective of users who want to just kind of get in and try out something like ASAV, right? Um, you know, you're able to go and download the OVA file and effectively deploy it in your environment. However, it's going to be restricted down to, uh, I think it's zero CPUs by default. It's uh, the way that it shows up in licensing. But that also reduces the performance down to, and Mike, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's about 100 kilobits yep, per second. That's right. So while that would be you know, basically useless for production traffic, it does let you get in, play around with, and try doing some configurations and some you know, packet tracer tests and kind of just try the product out before you buy. And I think that's really kind of a nice additional feature of the whole VM environment, especially for ASAs. Definitely, yeah. I've used that to reproduce some customer problems. So I've got a ASA 1000V, um, and the interfaces, in ESX, I program all the interfaces to be connected to just sort of a dummy network, so they're all up. So then I'll just have all my specific configuration scenarios on the disk of the ASAV, and then if I need to, I just do clear config all, and then copy from the disk to the running config, and right there I've got... Um, an ASA up and running with the config, and I can run Packet Tracer to see what's going on. So it's a really fast way to, you know, do testing or uh, try to reproduce a problem you may have seen uh, somewhere else. So it's very useful. Yeah, we use it a lot here. Okay, uh, the next feature in version 8.2, which is a big one uh, that was introduced, is BGP. So Kevin, tell us about the BGP feature in ASA 9.2. Sure. So for those of you who may not be familiar with BGP, it stands for Border Gateway Protocol. It's generally used for routing across the internet, mostly by ISPs. Uh, but we have recently implemented this functionality as of the ASA 9.2 release as well. Um, so we're, we're happy that we now have that functionality. Uh, so when you might use BGP on the ASA, we've seen some customers start to submit some cases to the TAC. Uh, in which you might have, generally if you have an MPLS router, for example, and you have uh, routes going across from MPLS routers at different sites in the customer network. Traditionally, you would have to have a Cisco router or some type of router running BGP to interact with those MPLS routers for route propagation from site to site. Uh, now you can actually have the ASA pair directly um, and establish a peer relationship with those MPLS routers that are running BGP on an ISP network. So um, in some cases on a customer network, it may reduce the requirement to have an additional router running BGP. So. Uh, that functionality has now been introduced on the ASA as of release 9.2. Yeah, 
You can also do some cool stuff like, uh, I mean, standard BGP stuff like remote trigger black holing. Um, and uh, 921 was the first version of the ASA that had BGP support, and it did not support the graceful restart capability. So if you, it was peering with a device um, like, say, a Nexus, we saw most of the cases come in on Nexus um, platform. So if the, if the Nexus was configured for graceful restart, then that peer relationship would fail to come up, I think, with the ASA. Yeah, it would actually it would come up, but then it would flap, um, and it would, it would complain about uh, a problem with the adjacency. Yep. So uh, as of version 9.2.2, I think we support Graceful Restart. 9.3.1. Okay. Yeah, 9.3.1. We support Graceful Restart, so um, you won't have that trouble. The workaround was just to go in and disable Graceful Restart on the interface or, you know, in the VRF that... Um, on the adjacent devices, on essentially. The adjacent devices. Yeah. So, Kevin, along with uh, the new BGP features... Um, I think we also now can do null zero as a destination interface. What, uh, what's that feature, and why would customers want to use that? That is correct, Magnus. Uh, the static we can now do a static route for a null zero interface on the ASA. Um, this sort of thing has been in use for a while, mostly on routers for purposes of RTBH or remotely triggered black holing. Mm -hmm. This is usually used in situations where you have a DDoS type of attack, where you have a need to send traffic destined for a host on your network to a null zero interface. Hmm. Basically, this just results in that traffic being dropped. So now you can have your ASA acting as that uh, as the target point for your your uh, avoidance of remotely triggered black holing, um, or your DDoS rather. So you can uh, establish a null zero interface and then basically put static routes in there for uh, destinations on your network if you want to just drop all traffic for that host. And, and there were some other uh, situations where I think a, a null zero route actually might come in handy as well. And uh, there's a scenario that we've documented and we have it online about you know, possible packet loops in your network if you're using remote access clients that connect or disconnect frequently and traffic that may be destined to them may end up taking different routing paths in your network than you're anticipating, right? Because with remote access clients connecting, we might have a host-based route on the ASA's routing table that says, all right, for this, you know, one host, I'm going to send that traffic outside the network. While there may be a larger summarized route pointing back in towards the inside router. So now we have this kind of ping pong back and forth of sending traffic mm -hmm. uh, between an inside mm -hmm. router and the ASA, a little packet loop, right? Uh, in theory, using null zero routes, you could create a uh, less specific next hop route for your VPN subnets and point that to null zero. So if we don't have the host based route, meaning the client's not connected, we'll actively drop that traffic as opposed to hairpinning it in a loop, right. right? So there's a lot of different ways that a null zero route can be kind of used beyond, you know, just dropping it for the sake of dropping it. Yep, that's right. Yeah, we're not going to spend a lot of time on that. I mean, if you want to hear more about BGP implementation on the ASA, it's pretty much the same as iOS. Mm -hmm. um, as, as far as the, you know, how many peers do we support, it's really bounded by memory. We, we um, have tested up to 100,000 prefixes with an ASA 5585-60 in single mode. So that's how much we've tested. You could probably get more, but we can't guarantee it'll, it'll work uh, perfectly after that number. But um, if you want to know more about BGP, let us know, and we can maybe do a, uh, another episode on routing functionality. There was also quite a bit of uh, enhancements to OSPF and EIGRP as well in version 9.2. So um, if you want to know more about that, uh, let us know. Um, what are, what's another interesting feature from 9.2? Uh, one that comes to mind for me is EEM, uh, Embedded Event Manager. And 
We effectively now support on the ASA what I would call EEM Lite. It's not the full-blown embedded event manager feature set that we have on iOS, but it's definitely a step in the right direction. Uh, one of the things that you can do with it is essentially take action on certain events happening on the firewall, right? It's embedded event management. So uh, one interesting example that I've seen kind of come up is, you know, basing or making configuration changes when somebody logs in or logs off the firewall. So let's say a user in your network, one of the admins logs into a device. I've seen customers configure EEM to automatically make a configuration backup the minute anybody logs in <laughs> just by basing it on the syslogs. Cause that's really how EEM runs. It says, all right, I'm going to be looking for these certain syslog events and then I'm going to run specific commands as actions as a result. So you see the log on event indicating somebody connecting to your firewall. You can have it do whatever you want, back up a config, export it to a TFTP server, do all sorts of really interesting tricks like that. So yeah, I think that's one of the, one of the ones that we're using a lot here in TAC just to kind of do some hackery like that and other sorts of scripting on the firewall itself. It's pretty neat. So what other, okay, so syslog, you can make an event happen. Well, there's syslog. a few more besides just syslogging, right? Um, syslog is one of the most useful ones, I believe, but you can also do it based on time-based triggers like periodic events or one-time events. You can also do it when a crash happens. So if, uh, if your firewall crashes and reloads, um, during that activity of the crash and reload process, you can also run certain commands and maybe get some more additional output. But that's a little bit tricky, right? Because in a crashing scenario, we're kind of in an unknown state from the firewall's perspective. So, And really, this would only be used if you were working with attack engineers. Yeah, that, it may be something that we advise, you know, hey, if you're running into a certain type of crash, let's run these commands and see if we can get some data. Now, again, it's all about running commands like configuration commands or show commands. And then you have to determine what you want to do with that output, right? You can either send it to the console, which may or may not be useful depending on if somebody's watching, or more useful is going to be outputting that to a file on the disk. So again, you could have some command run every time some event happens and then save that output. And that can be really useful for troubleshooting issues that may happen intermittently uh, and you can't just sit there and watch the console constantly. So let's talk about some uh, things you can do with this. Uh, we actually had a, an episode on EEM with Joe Clark. That we did. Right? And I think he talked about how this city or a county government was using EEM with their router where they had the router at the top of a pole above a road by a stream. And then if the stream flooded, it would connect two contacts, which caused an event on the router to send an email, which would cause them to like bypass road, they would like divert around the road because it was flooded or something? I, it's basically the civil engineering Rube Goldberg machine. <laughs> you know, river floods, a duck falls into a copper wire, <laughs> exactly. the duck explodes, you know, all but, sorts of crazy stuff, and, and so but it, it was brilliant. Right, that's sort of wacky stuff you can do with it, but um, it's very useful day to day. So some example on time-based events. So you can make it so that every midnight, uh, you back up the ASA config to your TFTP server, pretty cool. Or um, every three hours, get the output of show memory detail and save it to flash. That's if, perfect for troubleshooting if right you there. Were, yeah, if you were having trouble with uh, memory usage, um, that could be a, a problem. Or what about in, an, in a case where you might have, uh, don't have a syslog server or something like that, but you get intermittent events of some event happening, you could then set a trigger to gather the debug logs for a period of time before the log actually wraps, something mm -hmm. like that. 
Yeah, another good one uh, that we've used is uh, for block depletion cases. Um, so we actually, the ASA will generate a syslog if it's depleted its blocks, its memory blocks for some particular reason. Um, but the syslog doesn't tell you much more other than that the event happened, right? So we could use this to dump some of the block information and the allocation uh, information when that happens so that we can actually see who depleted the blocks and why. Yep, and uh, maybe... Um you could do some really sort of intense troubleshooting as a part of it. So say your AAA server gets marked down. Well, that'll generate a syslog. Then you could have the ASA, if it detects that syslog, run the ping TCP command on port 49 to detect whether or not the port was open. So that lets you know whether or not the packet reached the destination and whether or not it got a reset back or a synac back from the server. So that's cool. And then additionally, you could have it run the show AAA-server command to gather statistics. Um, you could have it save all this stuff to disk, and then you could actually have it tie into Smart Call Home to email you the file contents. Um, so you can chain these things together, which is pretty cool, um, to really do some powerful things. And so what we'll do is we will attach to the show notes uh, of this episode. We'll have um, some sample EEM scripts that we've written with examples of what the different commands mean. And maybe you can uh, make use of these because uh, it's, it's, it's pretty cool stuff. So we talked about some major features in 921, uh, ASAV, BGP support, uh, null zero routing. We've also got some others. I'm just looking at the release notes here. We've got um, OSPF support for fast hellos, so you can uh, reconverge faster. We've got OSPF timing and monitoring changes. Um, we now support cluster members in different geographical locations for transparent mode, so we uh, support multi-geographic locations. Um, we support up to 32 active links for an ether channel and spanned ether, um, for an ether channel and spanned uh, cluster mode. Which means we can do up to 16 units in a cluster. Wow. That is a lot. Of, I cannot imagine the number of cables that would need. That would be a lot of cables. That's a lot of cables. Um, ICE change of authorization. So that's really a, a big one where um, ICE can directly send to the ASA a posture change so we can take a VPN user and apply a new ACL uh, to them, for example. Uh, uh, there, there are some other things. Read the release notes. Uh, we just wanted to touch on some that we thought were uh, very impacting and, and that you could make use of. So let's roll into part two of this episode. We wanted to, um, there were some really interesting TAC cases that came along this week. Um, there was a lot of buzz in the cubes about some of these. And so we thought it would be interesting to talk about the, the technical aspects behind them. So let's start with you, Kevin. You had an interesting case that um, got pretty escalated and involved a lot of technology. So, so Kevin, tell us about this uh, case that you had uh, that you were working on and, and what happened. Sure. So we had a case come in uh, roughly about two months ago originally by a very large retailer that we had that was piloting one of our cloud web security products. Um, and their goal was to roll out cloud web security and they were testing out cisco's platform along with some of our competitors platforms as well um, and this large retailer has has hundreds and hundreds of sites across the united states and they were testing at uh, one of their retail locations and they were experiencing a situation where they had intermittent problems when they were redirecting traffic to our cloud web security uh, functionality that was ultimately happening through an ISR. So, so so walk through what that cloud web security thing does. What's the goal, sure. the business goal of that, and how does it do it? Sure. So their business goal, they had an inter one of their internal teams was actually the one doing the testing. And their, their goal ultimately is to filter all their web traffic. So HTTP and HTTPS traffic uh, through our cloud web security operation. So what that basically does is they're using an ISR or integrated services router that redirects uh, HTTP and HTTPS traffic to our cloud web security towers um, that are out in the cloud that perform the, the filtering and then forward the traffic over to the destination server. 
So their their requirements were to basically filter all of that web traffic um, in a way, you know, based on whatever policies that they had in mind. So that so that traffic, if if you're in the store on a PC or something, you bring up a web page. That traffic goes over, you know, hits wireless AP and gets, you know, routed over to an ISR box, which then doesn't send the traffic to the destination web server. It actually encapsulates it somehow and forwards it up to our scan our cloud web security towers, mm-hmm. which then process and scrub it and stuff, right? That's right. Yeah, and that highly depends on the configuration on the tower itself, you know, whether the customer wants to do decryption and decrypt those SSL flows or not decrypt, um, and as well as what, you know, categories of websites or specific websites based on regular expressions, things like that. So all the filtering is very dependent on the configuration, but yes, in terms of functionality, the router will, will capture the port 80 and 443 traffic, redirect that out to the tower, and it all happens transparently to the actual client itself. So, uh, and we're pausing here a little bit, but um, what's the benefit of doing this, say, than having an on, on-site you know, uh, web security device in your organization? Why send all this stuff up to the cloud? Well, I mean, there's, there's a lot of benefits that come from um, scalability as well as just the simple concept of cloud-based scanning and cloud-based policy enforcement. So, um, you know, one thing that, you know, I, I did a presentation at Cisco Live covering content filtering. And one of the things that I like the most about cloud web security as a solution is this idea of one policy regardless of location, this policy consistency. Okay. So um, our cloud web security solution can integrate with uh, a whole slew of what we call uh, connectors. And connectors are devices similar to the ISR that Kevin mentioned that will transparently redirect traffic to the towers. So it's got a significant amount of platform support, both on the ASA side, ISR, as well as some of our other products like the web security appliance supports redirecting traffic to these. Now, the one that is the most influential in that sort of one policy idea is AnyConnect or you know any sort of remote access client from Cisco can also force your VPN users to use the towers as well. So picture this, you got a user inside your network, they go, they're on the corporate network, they're getting uh, you know, policies enforced based on the fact that they're you know, John Smith in accounting. They decide I'm gonna take my laptop to a coffee shop and they go out to the coffee shop, load up, the AnyConnect client starts redirecting their web traffic to cloud web security as well, and they get the same policy level of enforcement that they were able to get inside your network out on the road. So that you have that kind of consistency, and that's really great, I think. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's definitely a good feature of that as well. Um, in this particular situation, going back to what Magnus was mentioning in terms of distribution uh, policy, um, cohesion and things like that across different sites. This particular retailer, as I mentioned, I think they have over 1,000 re- uh, retail locations. So uh, for them, cloud web security makes a lot of sense just from a functionality, ease of management, as well as capital expenditures, you know, a lot less without having to buy an actual appliance for every single one of those locations. And it gets to grow with your business too. Right. Yep. So they go in, they try to get this thing working, and then... Yeah, so yeah, work, so right. back to the actual problem that they were having. Uh, it, it proved over the, over the weeks to be a pretty difficult one to track down. Uh, first of all, the problem was intermittent. So oh, as we all great. know, yep. yeah, That's you get the, the, best. the I word gets thrown in there. So it's an intermittent problem, which means it's difficult to reproduce at times. Uh, the testing that we were doing was difficult. Now, this was a pilot. So uh, 
they did have uh, a way to test it in the store, but it was, didn't always happen. So it was an intermittent problem. Uh, the nature of the issue also had to do with uh, their end customer machines. So our test units that we were using often had issues of their own. So it made the testing, it introduced a lot of different variables into the testing, made gathering data more and more difficult. So not only was the problem intermittent, but it looked a little bit different as well oh, in man. our various tests. These, that, that is the, that, right, what you're saying right there, is the recipe for a very tough problem to track down. I mean, those are the ones when you when you get involved in an escalated issue or whatever, and th th that's like almost always a, a piece of the formula is an intermittent issue happens every once in a while, hard to get information, and and it's it's not consistent. Right, uh, exactly. So uh, so we went over you know first few weeks. Our main goal was to try and isolate the problem. So they had issues with lots of different web based applications. There were things like Java updates, Windows updates, things like that, um, Mac o updates, doing OS recoveries, things like that, uh, along with some internal applications that they had that just weren't working. So we had about five different problems thrown at us, all based on applications that use the web and, and only happening when we were redirecting traffic through the ISR, through this ISP's modem. So we had to try and pick and choose which issues we were going to troubleshoot, one preferably that we could reproduce uh, efficiently. Um, and so out of the five or six different problems that they threw at us, we found one that we could pretty consistently reproduce. And that's key, right? Because when you've got this giant mess of stuff all happening at once, I mean, you're, the first thing, if you call up the TAC, we're going to say, let's focus on just one small thing that we can tackle because that will probably provide a, much, a, a clue to the bigger problem, right? Absolutely. Cool. Absolutely. So yeah, the, the first step was to basically, let's figure out one thing we can reproduce. Let's focus on that. Likely, you know, as, as you guys know, in the TAC, a lot of times when you have issues like this and they're all using the same protocol, the same type of behavior, uh, they only happen with, in this case, with the cloud web security redirection in place, they probably, there's a good chance that they have the same root cause. So we can focus on one of the issues, figure out what's going on and move forward. So, you know, from there, we, once we focused on the one issue, then our, our task was to gather data. So, uh, it was a bit difficult because of the testing and, and all of the different pieces that we had to get in, in line to gather data. But what we did was we eventually uh, were able to reproduce uh, at this retail location, reproduce the problem. And uh, we relied heavily on packet captures. As, as you guys know, packet captures are sort of the end all be all a lot of times for network troubleshooting. So what we needed to do was get packet captures on the ingress and egress side of the ISR. So you're so, using iOS built-in packet capture? Uh, we didn't use the built-in packet capture. In this case, we were doing a span. Okay. So we had a device on the ingress and egress switch ports of the ISR to see exactly what was happening in terms of coming into the router as well as leaving the router. And what was the user doing? Like you would say, okay, we got the, okay, go. And, and what would they do? Yeah, so that, that that was one of the challenges. In, in getting them to reproduce the issue, we had to make sure we understood exactly which steps were happening because, you know, we get these packet captures that could be, you know, 100 megabytes of data, tens of thousands of packets. We need to, and we're trying, we're being asked to basically understand this application's behavior, yeah. figure out why it's not working. You know, of course, you know, we're network engineers. We don't necessarily understand what an OSX recovery process does at a packet level. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so basically at least maintaining some semblance of, you know, re repetition, same process over and over so we can at least do some comparison and working and not working captures. So, so we did that, um, and we took lots of uh, working and non-working captures, and we relied on, on packet capture analysis to figure out what was a common theme among the different problems that we were having for this customer's applications. And one thing we noticed was we had, when we had the problem occur, we had these TCP flows that were going out, and we would get these SYN packets uh, that, would never go, that would never be answered. So we were seeing, it was difficult, we were trying to 
understand all the different flows for the OSX recovery process. And it sends off, you know, over a dozen different flows. As so, it goes so what through. did you do? I mean, and that's a, that, I mean, this is a big problem, right? You get this big packet capture dumped on you mm-hmm. with um, 50 different TCP flows and something in there is breaking something in the application. So walk through when you loaded that up into Wireshark or whatever, what did you do? What did you look for? So one of the things we were looking for is, uh, it, well, any discrepancies. But before you before you can really start looking at discrepancies, you have to understand the behavior. So the first thing we sought to do was look for, uh, to do about four or five iterations of the test in a non-working state um, and and observe you know what was happening. Then we then compared it with, with working ones and see if we could, you know, see exactly what the differences were. That was difficult just because based on the difficulty of gathering the data as well as the sheer amount of data itself and the amount of flows. Uh, What we were able to figure out, though, is um, in any problematic flows, we had some of these TCP connections that would go unanswered. So we never got the three-way handshake completed. Um, And uh, and so then we were able to dig a little deeper from there. So you saw the sin come from the client, hit the ISR, and leave right. the ISR. Exactly. And then nothing coming back. That's no right. Okay. Yeah, so for a little while, we were we spent a lot of time you know, reviewing lots of different sets of captures. And uh, so we spent a lot of time reviewing a lot of different sets of captures. And uh, after, after treading our wheels a little bit on that, just because of the complexity of, of the actual process itself, uh, what we did was we focused on, okay, what is, what's problematic about this at all in terms of what do we see any traffic something wrong right do we see flows being reset you know do we see you know sins not being answered something like that and that's what we found we saw it on the ingress and egress side of the router because ultimately what we were trying to figure out also is what is the point of failure is it you know when they redirect so you know what we have to remember here when they say it only happens when we're redirecting traffic that also means we're redirecting traffic out of this router across a different ISP modem uh-huh. in this yep. case, because we found out also later on um, that they were backhauling the rest of their traffic across their corporate infrastructure. So it was actually going out a different pipe to the internet altogether. So they had this destination uh, host-based routing, basically, and they had destination static routes for our Cloud Web Security IPs in the routing tables. Uh. So uh, not all of that was was very apparent at the beginning. We kind of figured that out as we were gathering information and introducing things like debug towers, which was another which was another thing that we did. We we actually started redirecting their traffic to a special uh, cloud web security debug tower, where we have expanded packet capture abilities and things like that, as well as to just roll out the tower itself. Sure. So we kill a lot of birds with one stone that way. Um, in that process of redirecting them to a debug tower, we realized okay, they have host-based routes, um, which is basically slash 32 static route to route the traffic out this other ISP modem. Um, so that's, you know, multiple variables in there as well. Um, so our goal was to try and figure out, are we at least egressing this packet out the ISP? You know, is the ISR at least doing the redirection that's supposed to be doing correctly? And we found that it was. So once we found that the ISR was sending out those send packets and they were never coming back, our, the next step was to involve our Cloud Web Security Operations team. So most of them are based out of London, so it was a little bit of a time, uh, you know, we had a time gap with the customer and us and a lot of coordination that we had to we had to work out. So uh, another challenge there, gathering the data. But we finally were able to uh, get our operations team with the Cloud Web Security guys on while we were reproducing the issue at the, at the retail site. 
um, and we were able to get a full spectrum of packet nice. captures. So you're getting captures on lots of different points. Right. Ingress, egress on the ISR site, as well as ingress, egress on the tower itself. Cool. So that is that again is the key. Then we can see exactly where what's happening or what's not happening, mm-hmm. depending on the situation. In that case, we were uh, we noticed uh, after now analyzing the flows uh, on the tower as well as the ISR, we saw that when we had these send packets go out and um, and not answered, uh, we never saw them arrive. In some cases, on the tower. So bum, bum, bum. right, <laughs> exactly. The plot thickens. It does. Always does. So on the ISR, the way it does, uh, whitelisting. So they were trying to whitelist these flows based on regex. So um, we know for HTTPS flows on an ISR, that doesn't work anyway, uh, but because we don't get to see the GET request due to yeah. encryption. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, another thing I didn't, I failed to mention earlier, we tried IP-based whitelists as well, and it, we found that those did work. So we knew with no redirection uh, that the process was working. Um, however, when we were redirecting it, uh, it was intermittent. So uh, again, we were focusing on that aspect of it. What's the difference when we're redirecting via regex strings versus sure. uh, uh, IP-based ACL? One of the things that, that is very interesting is uh, the ISR will do a three-way handshake with the tower in that instance, and it will then reset the connection immediately and then redirect directly to the destination, thereby bypassing the Cloud Web Security Tower. In this case, what we were finding is we were the, the process that we were doing, this OSX recovery process on a Mac, reuses its source ports. So mm-hmm. we saw source port reusage in the packet captures, which is very interesting. It was another, another you know, kind of nugget to log on the side and say, okay, that's another thing that's not very normal in terms of TCB communication. They're not very common, yeah. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe common is a better it. word. Sure, yeah. sure. So we saw that the source ports were being reused, um, and then we saw that these send packets in some cases weren't weren't making it to the tower. So um, it was very interesting. The first send packet would, and then the first in the first. Uh, attempt at this OSX recovery would work. Now the customer, you know, they were saying, well, if we reload the box, then it seems to work. What, what ended up finding out is it's actually more of a timing type thing. So uh, it would initially work. And then when we tried to try cancel it, try it again, for example, we would send another send packet out and never saw it at the tower. Wow. So that was interesting. And so we, we wouldn't That's see a the- lot of variables to juggle. <laughs> I mean, did yeah. you just write it on your whiteboard or something like, yeah, we wrote it on our whiteboard. Um, you know, just, uh, yeah, basically just writing down all the keep all, good case notes. Keep that's really the key is to keep good case notes and and don't get let yourself get distracted. A lot of times, you know, the issue can become more and more convoluted. They'll throw you know the customer may inadvertently throw in more data like, hey, we tested the the other you know competitor solution and it works fine, um, only to find out like a day or two later that it didn't really work fine. Mm-hmm. You know, and and things like that. So you have to stay really focused on it. In this case. Um, we never saw those initial reset packets come. So I mentioned we do the three-way handshake, then a reset, then we do another three-way handshake, then a reset for these redirected flows. In this case, the reset packet never made it to the tower, so that when we retried it, oh. because we reused the source ports, that socket was still open. On the tower. On the tower, ah. for one thing. But for the other thing, we never even saw the other send packet get there. So not only did the reset not make it, but the next send packet didn't make double it either. Fail. So it double sounds, fail. It sounds like there was something in the middle that was monkeying with some of this yeah, traffic. Starting exactly. to sound like there's yeah. something on the internet. Exactly. So that was at that point that we had, we basically could make a, a, a very uh, educated guess uh, or hypothesis, basic, almost you know, full smoking gun type thing, right? So we have, we're sending the packets out. They're not getting there. There must be something in between. 
So, so you got the internet. We've got yeah. the internet, okay. yeah. And, and hop, of course, hop, trace route. Yeah, yeah. Th- exactly. And this is the fun part, right? So now you know, okay, what's in between? And of course, it's nothing. It's you know, it connects right to the the ISP, and then from there it goes right to the tower. And so um, that's always a fun, fun, fun uh, situation to find yourself in. So. Uh, we had the information. We knew something was affecting the TCP traffic in between based on the packet capture analyses that we had done. So the next step was to get the ISP on the phone, which oh, is not... Man. <laughs> yeah. So just to tell you, uh, we've in the TAC, a lot of times we encounter problems like this. We've got to forward the traffic on. Uh, or we're, we're sending, we think we're sending the traffic towards the ISP. And the next step really is to go to the service provider to say, hey, you know, can you tell where this packet is going? And sometimes that can be a challenge. Um, so how did it go? Yeah, so you know, I honestly didn't have the the highest hopes. Uh, it took us a while just to get a lot of traction with this particular ISP, but we did. And once we finally got some of their engineers on the call, um, you know, the first at the very beginning of the call, it was like, okay, guys, here's our packet captures. We know something in between is happening. Help us track this down in your network. And they kind of were scratching their heads at first, like, how do we track this packet through the network? So I said, well, let's start at the first hop, right? Let's start at the modem right next, you know, this directly connected to this ISR. And, you know, is there a way we can span the port um, on your network that this modem's, you know, connecting back into? Or, or you know, what's the what's the next step that we can trace this packet into? And so in, in, in that conversation, figuring out, you know, how we can gather additional data, they had brought in another engineer that specialized in this particular modem platform that we were working with. Um, this modem was, a, was uh, manufactured by a very popular manufacturer and um, it turns out during was the it c- cisco no it was not okay, cisco <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it was not um but what we found out is this so this the engineer from this isp gets on and he goes oh yeah that modem has an alg on it, an application layer gateway which as you guys know mm-hmm. it, you know does layer four through seven inspection so depending on on the layer seven protocol sip inspection http fdp things like that um, you know, it, it affects traffic, right? And so I've, I've, I've never seen a situation where an ISP modem has either. an ALG built into it I for mean, you. I mean, I guess so if, it's, if it is acting as your gateway to the internet and doing that and your access rules and everything, I guess it would need an ALG. It's like having a ASA in front of your ASA. Right. Yeah, well, in this case, I guess. So tell, tell us more. What? Yes. So it didn't, I mean, I was, my jaw kind of dropped when I heard that, especially, you know, because I hadn't seen it before and because it all just, all of a sudden, it's like that epiphany moment where everything kind of just, you know, Ding. clicks. Yeah. yeah. The bell so, rings. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and this engineer had apparently was, knew this product very well and even mentioned, hey, there was some framework updates about a month ago that fixed some behavioral problems with the ALG. So not only did it have an ALG, but there were some known issues with it. So ironically, um, the firmware update was done about a month prior to when we actually got on the call with him, which was right about the time we switched from this retail location testing to a lab. Um, it was it was kind of, it's kind of a funny tidbit the way troubleshooting goes sometimes because uh, the the firmware update made it so that it only affected through traffic undergoing NAT, which we were not Ugh. doing at the retail location. However, in the lab we were undergoing NAT, um, which we called out, but we said you know it's probably not going to affect the TCP you know traffic. You would think. You would think at least let's you know as long as you saw it being egressed from the modem, I guess right. So. Uh, well, long story short, when we turned off NAT, um, so our modem had the new firmware. So as long as we didn't have NAT involved, then the ALG would not affect the traffic. So we turned off NAT. Sure enough, lo and behold, everything started working. So you know, weeks and weeks of troubleshooting turned out to be an application layer gateway on an ISP modem. So that was news to me. I had never seen an ALG like that. 
Um, of course, the situation just made it hugely more complicated, probably than it than it of course needed to be. But that's just the, the nature of these sort of things. But um, you know, we've we're about a couple of weeks uh, after the fact now, and uh, so far all the testing is still checked out. Uh, it was funny along the way they. Uh, they had a competitor solution. They threw that in there, tried to test with that as well. And um, at first thought it was working and then realized it wasn't as well. So they were, that helped us also in the troubleshooting to know that both of these products yeah. that behave similarly were both having the same So outcome. after so. all of this, I mean, this is a, a great example of just how complicated these things can get. And it, you know, a lot of times as Cisco engineers, we troubleshoot non-Cisco problems mm-hmm. all the time um, and have to look at other devices. But what are the, what's the main thing that could have, you think could have helped us resolve this faster or what will you do differently next time or is there any lesson learned that we can pull from this well um you know i think i think the coordination you know so we learned some internal lessons in terms of just coordinating with our different teams i think um you know making sure that we you know that we work with customers to help understand the the entire picture you know getting surprised along the way with um you know doing destination routes and making sure that we fully understand hey we're backhauling all of our network all of our traffic across the network we typically do try and understand all of those variables at the onset sometimes you don't have much it's of a hard choice though. yeah because yeah. if the if the cus- if the problem comes in Cisco ISR dropping traffic intermittently. Mm-hmm. That's that's the first note in the case. And then yeah. you go to the the sol- resolution summary you put in and it's upstream, you know, n- uh, cable modem doing NAT ALG and dropping packet intermittent. I mean, that's so different, right? right? So, I guess yeah, getting try to get as much information about topology changes or anything that you can uh, when the problem comes in. Yeah, and so you know, I would just say, you know, to to you know, those running networks out there, you know, when you work with the TAC, also when we ask these kind of questions, it may seem prying or maybe even unnecessary. Mm-hmm. That's why we do, right? So if we had known um, some of that stuff up front, and, and to be fair, a lot of our customer point of contacts we work with don't necessarily know all they the don't details know. either. Right. They're, they're working on this section of the LAN or whatever. Right. And I'm like, oh, so we have a static route pointing all this traffic to the tower, you know, to the tower based on the static route. And they're like, oh, yeah, I guess so. Well, he inherited that from some other guy, right? Yep. So. Yeah, so that's why we do that. But I guess, you know, as lessons learned, it, you know, don't rule anything out. Um, fortunately, we were able to work our way towards that. It, just, it took a while, um, but never rule anything out. You know, even it can even be an ALG on a modem, for example. Wow. Well, that's a good lesson learned. Um, phew. Okay. So let's change gears here. Um, there was another case uh, that we were talking about in the cubes, and uh, Mike, you own that case, I think. So talk talk about what happened. Yeah, uh, the cases that are interesting to me are always the ones that um, either you know, like Kevin's, that start off with some particular problem description and end up being something completely unexpected, or um, just something that you you can sort of look at in a different way. And this was one of those. Um, so the the case originally came in as a pretty simple problem description. Just you know, I've got a VSG protecting some virtual machines and. With VSG in place, those virtual machines can't resolve DNS to our DNS server. So on the surface, it seems pretty straightforward. Um, that's always the classic trap, though. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll, t- I'll, I'll jump on this one. This yeah. one will be quick. This looks no easy. Yeah. Seven uh, years later. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I mean, essentially what they said is true. If VSG is in place, then DNS doesn't resolve. So we knew that to be true. As soon as you take VSG out of the picture, then, then things started working. So um, just like Kevin's case, you have to kind of distill that down into a reproducible problem, which they had, but also a definable problem that you can kind of easily grasp onto and troubleshoot. So for me, the best thing to do is, okay, we, we do the initial checks, like check your policies, obviously, make sure that VSG is not dropping that traffic, which it wasn't. That was pretty easy to see. And VSG was the virtual security gateway in between two VMs? Yes. So okay. um, the way that this particular network was set up was actually two data centers, and the VSG was at one data center, and there was a, a 
at that data center also was their DNS server and kind of all their like corporate, you know, AD servers and all that kind of stuff. And then at another data center that there was a trunk between them, the two um, was a set of just client virtual machines, essentially the members of the domain that had to log in and do whatever they were doing. Um, so yeah, the VSG was protecting those uh, virtual machines between those those two data centers. Um, so, like I said, we checked the policies and you know make sure that the the easy stuff's out of the way. So they permitted the traffic correctly and everything like that. Um, so for me, the next step is always kind of go to packet captures. Let's try to understand where specifically the DNS traffic is failing. Um, so we did captures and where where did you do this? We started on the client and just confirmed, yep. yeah, we're not seeing a DNS response. So that was pretty straightforward. So it was sending it. It was sending the packet and not getting any response. Um, then we did captures on the server and we saw that it actually was not receiving the DNS request either. Um, so okay, so now we know that the DNS request has left one data center and is not arriving at the virtual machine at the other data center. Is there an ISP cable modem yeah. in the yeah. middle Nat of that? ALG. By any no chance, ALG. Nothing? Okay. No ALG. Manufactured by a large that. vendor that's not Cisco. Yeah. But this, this is like, the, this is sort of our worst case scenario, you know, when we talk about this stuff is because now we basically just have two black boxes. This is all virtualized stuff, right? So mm -hmm. it's not like we can just... Um, you know, throw packet captures in the middle or something. There's go there's, hop by hop. Yeah, it's not like just physical networking devices that we can start to rule out. So we know the packet left one virtual network and didn't arrive in the other virtual network. So tracking that down can be a little bit tricky sometimes. Um, so after we did the captures on the endpoints, we realized, okay, the, the packet is legitimately not getting there. Um, now what do we do? So the one of the easy things to do is to set up what we call VEM packet captures. So if you have a VSG, you have to integrate that with another product of ours called Nexus 1000V. So it's it's a basically just a virtual switch. It's a big distributed virtual switch, um, and on that switch, there's you know typically what you'd be used to with with a, a modular switch would be line cards with a bunch of Ethernet interfaces. So we have the same concept here with the Nexus 1000V, and those are, those are called VEMs. Virtual Ethernet module? Virtual Ethernet module, go. exactly, yeah. So you can actually do a, sort of an embedded packet capture right on those VEMs to catch traffic. So um, we, we did that. We set up some packet captures, and sure enough, at the VEM at the side where the server was connected, we don't see the packet arriving. So again, now we know that, okay, the packet's not getting to its destination, but not only is it not getting to its destination, it's not getting to the switch that hosts that destination. Um, so... Now we have to take a step back because uh, there was actually, luckily, a physical ASA cluster in between the two data centers. And, and you know, we've talked about packet captures before on those ASAs. We were able to do captures there. Um, and we were, we were noticing that the packet was not there either. So, okay, we've basically cut it, the network in half at that point, And one data, one data center where the server is is basically ruled out. Um, however, when we did the capture on the uh, sort of originating data center, we saw the packet leaving. So we know it should be going out there. Turns out what we found is that if you do the VEM packet capture, originally the VEM packet captures are limited in packet size. Um, like you might find on uh, other capture devices, they don't capture the full packet length. They only get default. like the headers, yeah, like the first they, 64 bytes. Yeah, exactly. So those were the original captures we were looking at. And yes, we saw the packet there, but it was sort of a truncated version of that packet. But at the time, all we were looking for is, is the packet there, yes or no? And it was. So great. Um, as it turned out, though, what we found is that that wasn't actually the full-size packet. And what we saw is that the packet that was entering sort of the physical network was actually hugely sort of padded. 
it was a DNS request, right? So it'd be a couple hundred bytes typically is what you'd expect. But when it arrived on one of the physical devices in the path, it was, you know, 9,000 something padded out to a jumbo. That is a huge host name. <laughs> <laughs> Not something you typically find www.supercalifragilisticexpialidocious.com. <laughs> So, well, yeah, but you look at the payload and it's actually, you know, like 8,000 bytes of zeros. So, <laughs> so this is network de-optimization. Yeah. Yeah. De-optimization box. It just adds on <laughs> another 9,000 bytes. Well, they the just want to make sure that you're using the full bandwidth of your links. That's right. Right. It's, yeah. You don't want that to go to waste. <laughs> right. Yeah. So once we, once we actually realized that, okay, well, this packet is way bigger than it should be. And, uh, you know, the MTUs on the receiving links were not configured for jumbo frame. So of course you're going to drop that packet. But now that we know we're looking at the full size packet, when we look at the original packet on the virtual machine that had sent it, it was a normal, you know, couple hundred bytes. So, you know, I'm scratching my head thinking, okay, what kind of device just will pad a packet? That's quite know? a bug. <laughs> yeah, like, I send you a 200-byte packet, and you end up sending, you know, 9,000 bytes. So it was pretty bizarre. So what actually happened, though, is when you have VSG, there's a concept called VPath. Um, and it's, a, it's essentially an encapsulation protocol that allows us to take a packet, encapsulate it inside a VPath header and forward it to VSG. And inside that header has some information about, you know, what policy VSG needs to check the packet against uh, and some flags to say what to do with the packet, essentially. So in a normal networking troubleshooting scenario, you say, okay, well, I catch the packet leaving and I catch it arriving and something in between must be padding the packet. Well, when you add VSG into the mix, it actually adds a whole nother layer of complexity. So the protected VM, the source VM, is sending a DNS packet, but when it arrives at the switch, it realizes, hey, I need to send this to VSG to get checked against my policy before sort of I can force it, it over it there. Yeah. So we have to encapsulate that. Now, the VSG was at the other data center, so we had to encapsulate the packet, forward the encapsulated packet to VSG, let VSG make a decision, which in this case was permit, and then forward the packet back to the original data center, who then receives it, realizes, okay, VSG says it's okay to pass, now I strip the VPath header off and pass the real packet back to the other data center. So really that DNS request was, was traversing between those data centers twice instead of once that we would typically see. Um, so as we sort of worked backwards from knowing, okay, the packet's padded at the point that it leaves the first data center. Well, actually what we found is that the VPath packet was the one being padded, not the original oh. packet. So the original packet would come into the VEM, we'd bundle it up in VPath and forward it on. By the time we caught that packet at the remote data center, it would be 9,000 bytes. VSG would make a decision, you know, set the permit flags on it, pass it back, still 9,000 bytes. But when the VEM that originally sent the VPath request would receive it, it would strip off the VPath header and pass the packet. It would just strip the VPath header, not knowing that all that extra uh, stuff the at the so bottom was... So it would was, then pass the 9,000-byte yeah, DNS request. Exactly. Weird. Which would then get dropped upstream because the MTU wasn't big enough. So, yeah. So now that we had distilled it down to a problem, you have to figure out where that padding is coming okay, from. Okay, right? so what's the problem description at this <laughs> point? The problem description is uh, original them receiving the packet from the, the virtual machine... Um, adds the VPath header and forwards it to the other data center where the VSG resides. Right. VSG and other data center replies back with its response, still encapsulated. Mm -hmm. At that point, the header is stripped off when it arrives back at the VEM that originated the packet, right. but not the trailer. Correct. So what you're left with is a big blown up DNS packet, essentially, that's going to get dropped by somebody upstream. Was it 9,000 bytes of... 
it was like, you know, whatever the, I don't remember the size of the DNS packet. It was a couple hundred bytes, you know, and then all the rest of it was after the DNS payload was all just zeros, just Whoa. garbage data. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> not really a legitimate packet, but um, one that the VEM sent out nonetheless. So now, you know, we can't just tell the customer, have a nice day. Here's your problem. We have to, it's not a VSG problem anymore, right? But, you know, in the TAC, typically we'll try to chase that problem down until its final solution, even if it's not, you know, our fault necessarily. So that's what we did. We had to now find, okay, well, this VPath request leaves with a couple hundred bytes. And by the time it arrives at the other side, it's, you know, 9,000. So we basically just repeated the whole process. We get captures at each point in the path. Um, and what we found is that the packet, the VPath request packet was small or normal size all the way up until the point that it was received by the VSG's VEM. So basically it had traversed the entire physical network um, and once it entered the sort of destination virtual network, it was, it was padded, right? So now this is like, again, like worst case scenario because we have done captures on all the physical devices yeah. and it shows small packets. And we do a capture at the first virtual device that we can get access to and it's a large packet. So, you know, kind of like Kevin's case, there's not supposed to be anything in between those two. Um, essentially what it broke down to is that yeah, the packet went into sort of the physical servers, the ESX servers that, um, you know, host all these virtual machines. And by the time the VEM, which is really just a module in the ESX kernel, it's, it's just a piece of software that runs on top of ESX. By the time it received the packet, it was large. So, you know, the packet enters a physical chassis, uh, goes through the, you know, the physical NIC up through the, the kernel and through the hypervisor and then off to the VEM. And by the time it arrived there, it was padded. So, you know, your troubleshooting tools become limited at that point, at least from a Cisco perspective. It's more of like a, like a system administration yeah. problem. You're debugging drivers yeah, at that it's, point. It's yeah. like hardware level problems, right? Bust so, out the multimeter. Yeah. So we got VMware involved, obviously, with ESX being there. And uh, we've got the hardware vendor involved as well um, to do some more diagnostics. And, and they have some, some you know, di it's not quite packet captures, but it's some diagnostic level stuff that they can do to kind of see that packet. And basically through trial and error, what we found is that by the time the packet had been processed by the NIC, the physical NIC in these servers, it had been blown up. So um, this was like sort of a modular like blade chassis. So they were able to actually swap out the physical NICs for a different vendor's NICs. And when they did that, the problem Whoa. disappeared. Oh man. <laughs> so you've got so, a NIC driver physical yeah. problem thingy. Right. Whoa. So it's, it's for some reason, this NIC is when it's receiving this packet, it's, you know, I'm not a programmer, but I would assume like there's some buffer that this data gets dumped into, right? It's a, some the, maximum size of the buffer. You may need a 9K packet. So yeah. just go ahead and throw yeah, it yeah. in there. And it just flushes that buffer and that right. buffer is, you know, 9K and then you end up with a packet that's, that's giant. So like I said, that's just one of those scenarios that, you know, it starts as one problem, you know, my firewall's dropping these packets, but as it turns out, it's some other completely different problem that's some low level hardware thing. I find those pretty interesting. Yeah. So, so just to clarify, so why was it only being dropped though when they hit the, when the VSD was in the path? That's the thing we don't, we don't really understand. And actually the case is sort of still pending investigation from that Nick okay. vendor's perspective, but I would assume it's just some bug in the way that it interacts with our, uh, you know, product uh, with those particular hardware drivers. It could be something as strange as the Mac address has a certain bit yeah. set, you know, <laughs> right, who, right, who knows? Right. I mean, if you're talking about a driver or a, a Nick just bloating up to, you know, 9K, right. there's a limitless number of reasons for that. Yeah. Right? But I, it highlights an interesting 
thing about these virtualization type cases. And now we're moving networking into this virtual world. It presents all these new challenges that we didn't have before. Previously, we controlled the physical box yep. and we controlled the code that ran on it. So we were able to very easily debug that stuff. Now it's, it is sort of a black box and the packets go in and we receive them after there had been some processing done, but it's it's done in sort of a magical way to us. We don't necessarily know mm -hmm. because some other vendor wrote that, that code. Um, and it speaks to our sort of products. We, we, you know, we test our products on, on a handful of different hardware vendors with ESX combinations and things like that. And we list those typically in the release notes, but everything else pretty much should work. It's just a best effort type thing. Like virtualization is designed in such a way that the hardware really doesn't matter to us from like a security or a switching perspective. It, it should work fine, but it's those times when it doesn't, you know, we never tested with that particular vendor, so. Right, and that's a question that comes up. Uh, can I run this blank on this blank version of, you know, hardware? And right. the answer is maybe, but then we can't guarantee it'll work if it's not listed as supported because you may hit the 9K interface bug <laughs> weirdness, you right. know. Mm -hmm. yeah. Not related to ASR 9K. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But again, to be fair, like most, th these are some pretty complicated um, cases we're talking about today, but most of them aren't this hard, right? right. I mean, they're mostly um, issues that we're able to knock out in, in a day or two, right? I mean, it's not that it's this complicated, but these are the ones we like because yeah. these are the yeah. ones that are really interesting. The ones that make you scratch your head for a little while. Yeah, you're driving home in the car and you're like, what the <laughs> heck is going on? And you know that you're going to solve it in a week or, uh, you know, two weeks. You know you're going to solve it and you're going to maybe kick yourself because, oh, I should have thought to look at the routing table and check to see if there was not ALG on the gateway. I'll do that again next time. <laughs> yeah. Right? Right. I mean, um, something just, I mean, think about it. In Mike's case, literally the to the customer, it's I turn on VSG and the packet fails. Yeah. Really, that means it goes to the data center twice. It also hits this NIC that is now padding the traffic that is now causing it to get dropped. Yep. So all of that, it sounds like you're just introducing one variable, but you're really introducing just a myriad of them. Which yeah, is one we actually, change. We've, on, on top of that, we found that, uh, one thing I didn't mention, if, if we move the client to the same VEM, the same physical ESX host that the VSG is on, the problem goes away as well. Because you're not yeah. traversing so the physical virtual world. Well, that makes yeah. you scratch your head exactly. even more, right? Yeah. yeah, so on the surface, it's like, what? So <laughs> <laughs> Magic time. What's but yeah, happening? you got to understand like that physically, that changes the, the physical path of the packet yep. at that point. So you're, you, you, even small changes like that that seem like they don't have any networking impact do have, uh, they, they do introduce other variables. Yeah. Well, this has been a very interesting episode. Um, thanks a lot, guys, uh, for coming in and, and sharing your stories with us. Really good. I think uh, next episode we may be bringing you uh, Tales from Cisco Live uh, 2014. Um, and then after that, we're going to have a couple uh, cool episodes on some newer Cisco, uh, Cisco security technology. But thanks again to Mike Robertson and Kevin Klaus for being our special guests this episode. Yeah, thanks, guys. My pleasure. Thanks and as always, uh, reach us at Twitter. Uh, we're at Cisco Tech Podcast. Um, we will be available via uh, email, uh, Show at Cisco.com. Is that our email? I think it's Security Show. Security Show at Cisco.com. We haven't been getting a lot of emails from y'all, so that's why uh, we don't remember what the email address is. But you can always check it by going to www.cisco.com slash go slash tax security podcast. Awesome. All right. Thanks for listening, and we'll uh, see you next time.